0: Bob Murphy Show, episode 247. There's a tidal wave coming, what you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of the Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. What I'm going to do today is take a break from my originally scheduled plan of topics. What i do definitely need to get to you folks is a summary of the stuff that Paul Krugman has been doing lately and then even going way back. So just to end your anticipation, I know you're waiting at the edge of your seats. I'm going to have an episode saying something like Paul Krugman closet Austrian, because over the years, he's had things that sound very much like the Austrian theory of the business cycle. And this is going back to the mid 2000s. And earlier one, even Brad DeLong said, wow, uh, you know, he had a post saying something like, Krugman channels his inner Friedrich Hayek or something like that, right? So it's not me grasping at straws, just hoping to find an inconsistency. It's even Krugman's buddy, Brad DeLong said, gee, Paul's latest take here talking about the housing bubble, because this, this was in the mid-2000s, sounds a lot like an Austrian story, All right. And so the reason that's ironic in case... You don't know is that Krugman famously in the, I think it was late 90s, wrote a piece for Slate, I believe, in which he took the what he called the hangover theory head on. And it was, you know, the idea that, oh, you, you drank too much and then you're, you're paying for it later. And so he was saying, you know, that's the way he was crystallizing or distilling down the business cycle theory of people like Hayek, and he, I think, also sort of Lionel Robbins during the depression years that they were saying, oh yeah, we're paying now for the excesses of the boom. And then that's carried on and Krugman, you know, psychoanalyzed the people doing that and saying, ah, it makes them feel good to, you know, have a moral, a moralistic story. And we need to suffer now for our past sins. But really there's no economics here. And he compared it to the phlogiston theory of fire. So he was saying like, it's not just I disagree with the numbers or something or the magnitudes just don't work out for me. I think something else must be, he was saying, This is completely discredited. Or maybe he actually has sympathy for the philogestan theory of fire and he was complimenting it. And that's why he later embraced it himself. Who knows? But point being, sometimes when Krugman's talking about Austrian business cycle theory, it's like, this is medieval pseudoscience. What are you talking about? No serious economist would believe this. And then there's plenty of examples though, where when he's commenting on the current state of the economy, particularly if there's a Republican in the White House, then all of a sudden the apparent health of the economy is actually showing, oh, we're sowing the seeds for disaster down the road, all right? So he doesn't say just to not get your hopes up too high. It's not that Krugman says, oh, we see there's too much investment in fifth order capital goods and blah, blah, blah. It's unsustainable because look at the interest rate differential. He doesn't get that Hayek in, but nonetheless, it's there each time he comes out with a new example of that, I keep thinking, I got to write this up or I got to do a podcast episode on this. And then I just, stuff gets crazy and I don't get around to it. And then it's too late. But this time I'm going to do it. And then I will, like I say, I'll give you links to at least four times when he's done stuff stuff like that over the course of uh, this point. Let's see, it's at least 15 years. Okay, but what we're doing today. So that's just, you're like, oh, let me know about it. No, no, you got to wait. But what we're doing today, and this is going to be at BobMurphyShow.com slash two forty seven. If you need links on this stuff, is recently there was a young man. He is going into a debate tournament, and he arranged, and we you know we had a quick phone call where he was just running over some concerns about anarcho capitalism. And after the phone call, I thought you know that was some good stuff there that maybe the audience would like to know about. So I'm gonna just kind of paraphrase some of the things that he brought up, you know, in other words, it's kind of good to go back to basics when someone's going to present these ideas to the public and specifically a lot of the people that he knew were going to be in his audience were coming from an American Christian perspective. And so that's where some of this is coming from in terms of the emphasis and the way to sort of make the points sympathetically. Okay. So let's Dive right in. So the first issue is, hey, you know, if you want to get rid of the government, well, then you're kind of just thrown in the towel on social issues, right? Like, like abortion, for example. You know, if there's no government there, so, you know, geez, that's kind of tricky for me as a Christian conservative type. Okay, so this one took a bit to unpack. So first thing I said was. Especially, so this is true in general. I've tried to move away from this language. It's tricky because it's, you know, so easy to say, ah, the government taking my money. And the government, like that's such a common way of phrasing things. And it's sort of ingrained in me to associate the phrase, the government with the political authorities in the United States. And often, you know, meaning like the federal government. So, what I said, though, was that I'm trying to move away from that. Certainly, if I'm being thoughtful about it, I, I won't use that terminology and say, so it's not that I'm against government. Now, if you say the government, then, you know, that's more specific and some people know what you mean. But just to say in general, oh, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, I can't realize I keep stopping myself to go into these different tangents, but don't worry, I will circle back on all of them and will not leave any stitches undone. I also don't volunteer and say I'm an anarchist right because I'm a Christian so arguably I'm a monarchist because I believe in you know I have a king Jesus and you could say it that way but also just in terms of the baggage with that term that too many people think anarchism means you know chaos and and also in terms of the anarchists that oh what do they do they go around throwing molotov cocktails into store windows and stuff and they think banks are evil all right so partly to just not provoke that sort of immediate emotional reaction in the listener. That's why I certainly don't volunteer that. Like I've always said on this stuff, if I'm at a libertarian conference and someone comes up to me and says, Hey, Dr. Murphy, we, I was arguing with my buddy. Are you an anarchist or not? I'll say yes, because I know what they mean. They're trying to pin down. Like, are you a minarchist or are you a full blown anarchist? Like, do you think just schools and roads should be privatized? Or do you also think nuclear weapons, you know, that kind of stuff. And so that's, just to avoid confusion in that context. Yeah, I'll just say I'm an anarchist so the guy can win his bet with his buddy. But I don't, when talking to the public, volunteer that. And it's not because I'm, a, I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm just saying because what people think I mean by that term is not what I am. Just like I wouldn't go around telling people, oh, I'm very sympathetic to the liberals in American society and political discussions. I wouldn't walk around saying, yeah, on most issues... You know, it's not that I myself call myself a liberal, but typically when I listen to liberals arguing with anti-liberals, I side with the liberals. I wouldn't say that even though if what I mean is a classical liberal, like someone like Ludwig von Mises, then what I'm saying is true, but that would be completely misleading that people wouldn't be helping anybody. They would, just, they would think I meant, I like Paul Krugman, right? His column he titled is called The Conscience of a Liberal. they would think that. You know, oh, I was a big fan of Edward Kennedy back in the day because he would have, you know, been very liberal. The liberal media, you know, that Rush Limbaugh would lambast. All okay? right. So that's why I don't use that term, even though historically and technically, what do I mean? What do I think the right meaning of that word is? Then, yeah, I would be very sympathetic to the liberals when I look at debates between liberals and non liberals. But again, I don't use that term because it just wouldn't serve any function since most people hearing it would think I meant something else. So likewise with anarchism, even though if you give me two minutes to explain what I mean by that, then yes, I'm an anarchist. I should use a term that doesn't require me to take two minutes first on the front end to avoid misleading people or confusing them. Right? So in any event related to that is I don't try to volunteer and say, I want to get rid of government. Or I'm against government because government, with a small G, can be a very broad term that just means a system in place where each individual is subordinate to, or can be influenced by, or has is constrained by the views and decisions of other people. And so, especially in the context of American Christians, for example, if you join a church formally as a member. Depending on the church, you will have to explicitly agree that you submit to the authority of the church elders, and that you're agreeing that when it comes to matters pertaining to this church, the elders have authority over me. And I agree to that ahead of time. Otherwise, you know, they're not gonna say I'm a member of the church. Like for people who don't know you, like in most churches, you're still allowed to walk in and sit there on Sunday and listen to the preaching and the music if you're not officially a member. But for the church to recognize that, yes, you are a member of this church now, in a lot of places, you're agreeing to a bunch of, so you had to take classes and things like that. But also, you're explicitly agreeing to submit to the authority of the elders. And there's times when you get kicked out, right? Like I knew of a case, not at my church, but my friend's church. I went to it a couple of times and I happened to go one day when they booted somebody out and... The guy was sort of apologetic to me. So I'm like, whoa, this was not something that happens every day, Bob. But in any event, they were, I won't say the specifics, but the guy was doing something that the church elders thought, you really need to stop doing this. And the guy not only didn't stop, but he was basically telling them, I'm not going to, like, mind your own business. And yeah, it wasn't illegal, but it was sinful. And so they booted him. All right, so... that's a rare thing. Like I said, my friend was telling me like, whoa, that's the first time I've seen that happen. And I've been going here for years, but in any event, so there were the members of that church against government. Well, no, they would say the governing authorities of that church were the elders. Okay. So there's that element. And then two, there is law enforcement in a Rothbardian type world. Okay. So we're not against, and by the way, when I use Rothbard. I'm just doing that to be real specific about the type of vision I mean. It's not that I agree with everything Murray Rothbard wrote about this is what a free society would look like. All right, but I'm just using that to help be more specific about what type of vision do I have in mind here. So in that framework, just like you wouldn't say, oh, you guys are against public schools. Well, I guess you don't want kids to read then, right? No, that doesn't follow at all. It's we're against a coercive monopoly government, you know, imposing, for one thing, educational mandates, like, you know, saying you got to go to school up until this age. But beyond that, you know, taking money from people against their will in order to fund so-called public schools. We're against that stuff because it involves coercion. That doesn't mean we're against privately funded. And it doesn't mean everyone has to pay. Like there can be you know, if there's hardship cases, the school either can just offer a pro bono or severe, seriously reduced prices just out of goodwill. And just part of their, is their mission just like doctors and lawyers might offer services pro bono. And that was more common, by the way, back in the day than it is now for clients who just can't, they know they can't afford. But you could do that. And so it doesn't mean you're against education. And so likewise, just because we're saying we don't like this existing system where the political authorities claim they have the right to designate lawful uses of violence within the jurisdiction. And they also claim the right to collect taxes, by the way, and they you know build prisons and have judges and typically both parties to a dispute do not get any choice in who the judge is. Like even if both parties would prefer a different judge, like maybe there's some other judge that they both agree, yeah, this person makes more consistent rulings that... We know we're going to get a fair trial going into this one. They can't do that. You go to the judge that you're assigned by the authority. I want to say by the government, but then (laughs) that would defeat the whole point of what I said two minutes ago, right? So that's because I'm against that whole system. It doesn't mean I'm against laws or even law enforcement. Now, as a curveball here. I personally am a pacifist, so I don't think the police... Or whatever you know, the, the agencies that go around helping to enforce laws, protecting property rights and so forth. I don't think they should have guns. Well, at least if they shoot real bullets. All right, I'm picturing them, you know, having a lot of body armor to protect the personnel, but also you know nets and things like that. You know, and you say, "Oh, that sounds stupid." But uh, well, okay, but the context of this is a society that doesn't have the state fueling all the sources of crime that it currently does, right? There wouldn't be legal prohibitions on drugs and gambling and stuff like that. And so a lot of the sources of revenue for criminal gangs right now would disappear. There wouldn't be awful government schools. There wouldn't be minimum wage laws, right? So a lot of people who right now in certain areas, they really don't have very good prospects in terms of quote legitimate employment, that's why they turn to crime that would all be absent in the kind of society I'm picturing. So if you think, oh, well, the police would get overwhelmed by criminal gangs if they didn't have basically tanks and high-powered rifles, I I don't think that's accurate. But in any event, so just because you're against the political course of authorities establishing laws and then enforcing them doesn't mean you're against law enforcement per se. So, you know, maybe you make that point too. And so this is all consistent with Paul's letter to the Romans famously, you know, talking about, oh, why are you fearing the sovereign? You know, God gave him the sword to sort of enforce justice on earth, that sort of thing. And so therefore you Rothbardian anarcho-capitalists are crazy. You're opposing what God said. And the way I try to flip that around on, American Christians is to say, were you guys okay with the U.S. taking out Saddam Hussein? Because, you know, why would anybody be afraid of Saddam Hussein in power? Only criminals should have been afraid of Saddam, right? According, if that's the way you're going to use Paul's letter to the Romans. And so who are you to second guess God's judgment and putting Saddam where he put him? So most American Christians wouldn't say whether or not they thought invading Iraq was a good idea. They wouldn't think it was unbiblical for that reason. And the, you know, by definition, we're never allowed, you know, oh, and entering World War II was wrong, right? Because those authorities in Germany and Japan were put there by God. And so who are we to? You know, right? You wouldn't say that as an American Christian. So likewise, if I'm against the particular attributes of the existing political structure in the United States, you can't merely say, well, no, as Paul explains in his letter to the Romans, you have to accept the governing authorities because, or rather what, you know, the way some Christians parse that out is they say he was being a little bit coy, but he was saying by governing authorities, Paul meant legitimate governing authorities. Whereas people, rulers who were acting despotically were not actually governing authorities. Like, they, you know, you, you forfeited your right to that title. Right, so that's part of the way some Christians explain. Because superficially, it does look like Paul is just giving carte blanche, saying anybody who's walking around call himself the leader, and that manages to convince enough cops and soldiers to back him up. Yep, you've got to do what he says because that's what God wants. And so, since that can't be what he meant, obviously, if the political ruler says it's illegal to be a Christian, then you don't follow that command. So. Again, that's the way some Christians deal with that stuff. But in any event, given that Christians agree it is possible to oppose a particular political ruler or structure, then you can see, all right, so that's how as a Rothbardian, I can be a Christian and oppose what I consider to be the illegitimate coercive nature of the U.S. state at the federal level and state level and so on. And then as far as abortion goes, just particularly if you think it's homicide, well, then, you know, that is still applicable, right? It's not just like a social preference or something, right? The people who are against abortion, it isn't a matter of a victimless crime, the way libertarians might frame something like heroin use. All right. So if somebody wants to argue, hey, if we get rid of the state, then won't there be a jump up and pornography and prostitution and heroin use, and I'm against that. And so that would be a harder discussion to have. But if someone says, I think abortion is murder, and so I'm concerned if we get rid of the state, how are we going to stop it? Well, then I would say, okay, by the same token, though, you would be against someone just walking up to an adult and shooting them in the head for no reason. And so if we get rid of the state, does that mean that's just open season on adults? And it doesn't mean that. So you can go through that process. Okay. Another issue that this young man brought up was was road access. And he was explaining that when he tried to explain some of these ideas to, I don't know if it was family members, but they were concerned, well, geez, you just privatize everything. Like what happens? The company just buys up the roads around your neighborhood and then charges you a really high toll to just get in and out of your house. That sounds kind of crazy. So Walter Block has written literally a whole book on privatizing roads and let me just mention in case you never thought this through like this is actually this isn't some minor little thing like this is actually a big deal especially in major cities like going into and out of a major city like if you take a lot of road trips on the east coast for example you just know you do not want to be anywhere near atlanta or washington dc for huge stretches of the day or pff, you you boom you just kiss two hours goodbye And that's crazy, especially because, well, I was going to say people are really productive. That's more true of like New York and Atlanta (laughs) Washington, D.C. Maybe it is good that all those people get tied up in traffic and they can't be at their offices plotting against humanity. But that's crazy. So what happens in a traffic jam? Economically, that's a, a shortage, right? At the existing price to use that scarce resource, the quantity demanded is higher than the quantity supplied. So there's a shortage. So how do you deal with that? Well, the price needs to go up. And then in a normal market with free entry, the higher price then attracts, you know, a greater supply. And that's how, you know, you deal with it. And so, you know, in major cities where just routinely, you know, they have rush hour periods where everyone just knows, Oh my gosh, you don't want to go on the highway right now. You're, you know, to be at a parking lot. That's not normal. That's not just a feature of, yep. That's how cars and roads work. No, that's how government, sorry. (laughs) That's how politician run cars and roads work, okay? So in general, I'm just saying privatizing the roads is not just a matter of logical consistency. Like, oh yeah, I guess, you know, for purity reasons, we got to privatize the roads, even though it opens up all these problems. No, life would be so much better. Seriously, there'd be fewer workplace shootings. I'm not saying that facetiously just sitting in traffic day in and day out for hours at a time honking and it's hot and you're just, oh, I I need to go somewhere. Get out of the way. What are you doing? Look at this idiot. Oh my God, you ran out of gas. What are you crazy? Oh man, this guy's got a flat tire. The whole lane shut down now. He got to merge. Ah, Like over time, that feeds on itself. And I I truly believe there would be fewer workplace acts of violence if roads were privately owned. Okay, so, but you know, you, you do have these Issues like, well, gee, what if somebody buys all the roads that come in and out of my neighborhood and then they, you know, set up a toll booth and say it's $50 each way. So the easy thing to say, first of all, is that wouldn't be a problem after the transition going forward. That any new developer who bought, you know, forest land, knocks the trees down, puts in 50 houses little cul-de-sacs and nice little circles and lanes and blah, blah, blah. And then there's just a few choke points coming in and out of that thing. If anyone's going to go in there and spend whatever, $250,000 on a new house, they're going to need assurances that they can get electricity and water and sewage services and the ability to drive in and out without having some company come in and just jack the price up. right? That you wouldn't want to say, well, the water company is going to charge you now a lot for that. And so, you know, because that would, you wouldn't want to do that. And then the developer knowing that would have contractual arrangements with these big companies accordingly. And as a property developer, they would have more clout and bargaining strength at the table. So it wouldn't be like you, this little peon dealing with these huge behemoth companies, right? And because why would the developer do that? Not just because he's a nice guy, But because he would know, I can get more for these houses if people are assured that down the road, no pun intended, they're not going to be basically blockaded within their own neighborhood. Okay, so that's the way you would deal with it in terms of going forward. You know, any new developments, that's not going to be an issue. Now, it's true, and this is a general problem, and the student brought this up with the case of Russia when they moved away from communism to a more quasi-market-oriented society, they had a lot of privatization of previously owned state-owned assets and a lot of so-called oligarchs snatched them up. And so the problem then is, okay, so right now, if we privatize the roads though, yeah, so we get you, Bob, going forward, newly built housing would not have this problem, but what about in the transition from the current state to... The new state of affairs, you know, wouldn't there be abuses? And certainly as the local city councils or whatever are selling off the local roads, you can imagine there being abuses and that the local city councilmen and women aren't going to lose sleep over somebody getting blockaded in their neighborhood. They might just sell it to the highest bidder and blah, blah, blah. Right. So that is an issue. And all I can say at the moment is what I do is I think first it's settling on what the goal is. Like, where are we headed? You know, if you're on a ship or something and there's issues about, well, there's rocks here and there's currents here and sea serpents over here and uh, whatever, (laughs) sirens over here that might distract us. But you got to take into account all those obstacles, but you need to know where you're trying to go, right? Like that's kind of the first thing to figure out is where are we trying to go? And then we can try to navigate through the obstacles. But if you don't even know where you're trying to go, well then then you're really stuck. Okay. So to me, like I think it's more important at this stage of the development to flesh out like how could a free society work? Like, is it even possible to imagine a society lacking a coercive state of the type that we think is necessary, given what we've learned and you know what the ostensible lessons from history are. And then if we can agree, yeah, that's the goal, You know, then we can worry about, well, how would you get there? And so that's one thing. But having said all that, there's a couple of things. So for something that's like a broad-based asset, like offshore oil deposits that right now the federal government controls the access to and they largely limit it, you could just auction those things off to the highest bidder and then distribute the funds... You know, just sort of proportionally to the various citizens who nominally own it. Okay, you can do stuff like that. Now, what's tricky though is existing so-called public property that only a small segment of the population is very dependent on. So yes, the local road that the residents of this neighborhood use all the time, maybe what you would do is you would hand that over to them and they would own it jointly and that sort of thing. Or you would auction it off, but you would have in place, you know, sort of right of way provisions built into it. Right. And that kind of stuff is, that's a science fiction that exists right now. Like if you own property and people need to walk on your lawn, quote your lawn to get to the pond that's behind it, and you're not buying the pond, like that's clearly like your property line ends there, then, you know, there can be provisions and and you know, and you know that when you're buying the property that, okay, you don't have the right to just put up a fence here. Like people need to be, to come and go to get to this pond. Okay. So that's kind of standard, you know, going back centuries in terms of the common law and whatnot. So, you know, this isn't some magical thing I'm making up because otherwise we're all going to be held hostage by road owners. Okay. So there's, there's that sort of thing too. So it's, again, in practice, they're, Will be problems during the transition, but that's not a reason I would say to just not do it. Just like, you know, if all of a sudden all the slaves, or the more realistic scenario, like the young children of the existing slave owners, you know, back in a society that has widespread chattel slavery, if they read abolitionist tracts and become convinced, and then they come of age and then their parents die and hand them over ownership of the plantation and the slaves they know this can't persist. Like, you know, we need to emancipate, quote, our property. And there could be issues. You know, you could say, well, geez, you know, these people have been, you know, just to throw them out on the street and say, good luck to you now, go get a job. Sorry, you know, that might not be adequate given the history and, you know, maybe you need to do more or something during the, quote, transition. But you certainly wouldn't say, so, the, the, you know, why don't we just keep them as slaves? Because, you know, it would be heartless for us just to, you know, they haven't been properly educated and, you know, they're used to their basic needs being taken care of by the plantation owner and blah, blah, blah. that would be incorrect too. You wouldn't just say, let's let this injustice persist. So if we agree that the current system is unjust or unjust, then you don't let that persist because the transition, you know, could have some messiness to it. Now you don't commit other injustices in the name of, you know, I'm not saying you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. Okay, let's see here. Last one is he brought up military defense. So of course I have a whole essay on this in my pamphlet, Chaos Theory. You know, a lot of people know that one, but then I had a follow-up pair of essays in the Libertarian Papers journal where I was more specifically, someone had challenged my views and said, the free society needs to credibly own and point Powerful nuclear weapons at outside countries, like to you know, for mutually assured destruction. Otherwise, we're sitting ducks. And I disagreed with that. All right, so you can just see my th- so whether it's just on that narrow topic, but you know, you get a broader view too of my general views. I'll link to that stuff. So again, go to BobMurphyShow dot slash two forty seven for these links. So the, the issue being, well, gee, aren't we just sitting ducks if we disband the government, not the government, the, the state funded military? aren't we sitting ducks? Okay, so one thing is when you understand the mechanism that I think of how you'd have large funding for privately produced military defense, which involves insurance companies, right? So in a big city, there are skyscrapers, a lot of valuable real estate. They have an insurance policies like against fire, like, oh, gee, I have this skyscraper, whatever, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, what if there's a fire? Well, that, that would be terrible. I guess we can't have skyscrapers, Right unless the government the government unless the political authorities tax us and provide fire departments and sprinklers and insist on building codes right and you can see how no that's you don't need coercion for all that stuff private fire insurance companies exist and they could have rules like oh if you want us to insure against this big building here's the code you need to you know the minimum requirements for the building Structure and the sprinkler systems and smoke alarms and ways for people to get out of the building if the elevator is not working, and blah, blah, blah. You know, you could have policies like that. We also have deals with the privately provided fire service, you know, people who have big trucks and whatever that come up and shoot water out of hoses. You know, you don't need politicians to make sure that there's trucks with hoses on them and the roads would all be privately owned. And so you could have fire hydrants where they need to be. And all of that would be more efficient and cheaper than the existing system. Okay. So you understand that? All right. So now, oh, besides a fire or an earthquake or petty theft, another threat to this dense urban area with all of these very expensive buildings and jewelry stores and whatever is, well, gee, what if some neighboring state sends over some bombers and or ground troops, and they just come in and wreck everything or steal all our stuff. You know, geez, that, whoop, there goes that idea. I guess we can't have cities. Well, no, you could have insurance contracts against that type of damage as well. And now with the premium payments on those policies, the insurers have flows of, depending on the size of the city, hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars a year that they could spend on prevention, Right, So rather than having to pay out the claims every time some neighboring state send its military in and loots the place and breaks a bunch of stuff and kills a bunch of people, instead, you spend a fraction of that of what those claims would be the indemnification in order to make it much less likely that that happens, just like a fire insurance company could say, "Hey, if you put fire extinguishers." all over your property. And you know, we randomly send inspectors occasionally to check on that and whatever, make sure that they're actually there, that if it's a business that the employees you know know how to use them and stuff like that, then we'll charge you lower premiums, right? That's not science fiction. That's real. Stuff like that happens all the time right now in the real world where insurance companies give you discounts if you show that you're doing certain things that make claims less likely. Okay. So likewise, insurance companies that specialize in indemnification in the event of a military invasion by some rival power, it would be in their interest. You know, they'd have their actuaries run the numbers. They could put bounties and say, if we ever get invaded by an outside entity, then some company that can demonstrate to us that they took out a tank, you know, we will give you $5,000 or whatever the, you know, 5,000 units of gold. Okay. If you take out an infantry, then we give you... Whatever, 100 units, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that's the way market prices could be established. And then you would have market provision of military defense with all of its attendant benefits over central planning. Right. So that's the basic model. Now people say, well, geez, that sounds kind of wacky or whatever, but, you know, and doesn't history show? And yes, you know, we do have some examples, like, for example, uh, medieval Iceland, but it was eventually conquered. But we also have, Examples of status militaries that were conquered, right? So France at the start of World War II got toppled pretty quickly, and it wasn't because they relied on Gustav de Molinari's writings and, and just thought, well, I guess I'll just rely on privately organized defense against Germany this time and see what happens. That's not. What I have. No, they had the Maginot Line. They put all their eggs in one basket. They didn't finish it. Left the forest open. Hitler just sent his tanks through there. Oops. Okay, so centrally planning your military defense also has in some cases failed dramatically in terms of the lessons of history. So again, there's also plenty of examples like the U S during the war of the American revolution. How was it that the colonists were able to repel the greatest military force of the day? Well, it's partly because they relied on militia and irregular tactics and things. They didn't fight the way the British did. And so You know, you got examples like Vietnam or just the Afghans against the Russians and even the United States, arguably. Plenty of examples of smaller outmatched forces punching above their weight. And so with an ANCAP society, you would have those advantages still of decentralization and people fighting to defend their homeland and that kind of stuff. And they would be much richer and have better technology than any statist invader. All right. So that's the way I would deal with that. Okay. I will wrap it up there. Thanks folks for your attention. I'll put links to all this stuff at bobmurphyshow.com slash 247. If you want to read more on this and then I will catch you next time. I think when we're going to be going through Krugman the Closet Austrian. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.